Hello, welcome to At The Source. I'm Karis and this is Alex. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food. And eating it. So we wanted to talk to fellow food lovers and record their stories. We're having conversations with everyone from home cooks to food producers and restaurateurs. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. In today's episode, you'll hear Karis and I chatting with US chef Jerome Grant. This was an episode that I was particularly excited to record because what he does in the museum dining space is really innovative and actually really, really exciting. So currently he's the inaugural executive chef at the Sweet Home Cafe, which is situated inside the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. And before that, he was also cooking at Mitzatam Cafe, again inside the museum at the National Museum of the American Indian. So what he's doing is bringing the food of the past to life. And that's why I find it so exciting, because many of you will know if you've listened to the podcast before that I studied history at university, and clearly I'm well into my food. So the idea that Jerome and his team are combining recipes from the past and indigenous ingredients from the past and creating these menus that sing from the same hymn sheet as the exhibits that the people in the museum have just seen, listened to, watched, whatever. I just think that this holistic approach to the museum experience, which includes dining, is really, really exciting. I, for one, hope that this kind of thing starts to happen in the UK, where currently, from my own experience with canteen-style food and dried-out packet sandwiches, Jerome's own food story is, is just as interesting as the ones that he builds through his work. So he was actually born in the Philippines and at a very young age with his family moved to America. Some of his food memories that he talks about in this episode are a mix really so learning to cook Filipino dishes with his mum at home but then also going out to the big fast food brands that are well known all over the world he also talks about learning to cook Jamaican food with his paternal grandparents and I just really love this whole melting pot of different tastes, cuisines, all forming together to make Jerome the chef that he is today. Before I stop waffling and let you go and actually listen to this episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Lauren Bernstein. So Lauren is the founder and CEO of something called the Culinary Diplomacy Project, which is based in the US. And we actually were lucky enough to meet Lauren at Abergavenny Food Festival last year, right back in September. She, along with support from the USM has been responsible for bringing a number of well-known US chefs over to the UK to help promote the difference in food and culture between America and, and other places around the world. And actually, that's why and how we met with Jerome in the first place. He was here with Lauren and her team back in November to celebrate the upcoming 400th anniversary of the Mayflower, which was the first ship to sail from the UK to the US. And actually, we met in the Mayflower pub in Rotherhithe in London, which is this incredible space that dates back to the 1550s. We sat with Jerome and other chefs and enjoyed a Sunday lunch, a kind of traditional English Sunday roast, which was quite fun. And then we sat down and recorded this episode. If you do have time when you finish listening, go and check out Lauren's work with the Culinary Diplomacy Project. They're on Instagram and they have a website as well, which is theculinarydiplomacyproject.org. She is taking 
American chefs all over the world with this one thing that she wants to do, which is a really simple mission, but a really important one to promote mutual understanding among people of different cultures through the power of that very simple thing that we all do, which is food and eating in a world that seems to be filled with so much darkness at the moment. It just feels like a really important mission. And I absolutely respect Lauren and think that she's she's great at what she does and have to thank her for continuing to support at the source by introducing us to these amazing American chefs and people from within the American food industry to be able to come onto the podcast and chat to us. Anyway, I am 100% rambling now, so I'm going to stop. Without further ado, here is today's episode. First question we ask every single guest, what is your first memory of food? My first memory of food, uh, my first memory of food ultimately was a, uh, how can I say, fast food. Um, growing up with memories of Kentucky Fried Chicken and like the coleslaw and the, the salty mashed potatoes and things like that. That was like my first resonation of food, like just delving into it. So you're born in the Philippines. Yes. Was this when you were in the Philippines? I'm assuming not. No, this was when, this we were the, when we moved over to the States. How old were you when you moved to the States? I was four. Yeah, three or four when we came over. Um, we had moved to Alaska first and then traveled down to California, then from California to New Mexico, New Mexico to Oklahoma, Oklahoma to upstate New York, upstate New York to Washington, D.C., and wow. a couple of stops in between around there. And KFC in every yeah, state. Yeah, KFC in every state. I guess there's some sort of consistency there. Yeah. What was the catalyst for, for all the moving around? So your mum is from the Philippines. Right, my mum is from the Philippines. Um, my stepfather was in the military, so we travel a lot. Um, okay. He'd get new assignments, you know, almost every six years. And um, it really helped me grow just as a person, you know, to see different uh, walks of life, just not even just, you know, culturally, but just how people live regionally, you know, the difference between that. And at the same time, just it seemed like everywhere we were at, there was some kind of food thing. So it was always like, I'd wrap my mind around, you know, new traditions of that area, you know, whether it was like pumpkin chunking or, you know, the apple harvest or something like that. Sorry, just to go back. Oh, pumpkin chunking's fun. Pumpkin not done it, but chunking. it looks fun. Pumpkin chunking. Can you explain what it is for our English so, listeners? So over on the eastern shore of Maryland, they have this fest uh, around autumn time called pumpkin chunking. So essentially, you know, folks bring on a team. Some are like family teams or just friendly teams. And they take a whole year to perfect a chunking machine. Essentially, it's a machine that chunks a pumpkin. I've never heard of that. I've seen this on TV, and it looks like a ton of fun. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's super amazing. Did you and your family ever have No, that? no, no, no. But no. you'd go well, and watch. But we'd go and watch. We have to find a video of this on YouTube and put it on the, on the blog, I think. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's a serious thing. It's, it's documented. Taking it back to more serious yes. conversation, as a serious chef as you are. You've spoken in interviews about how your Filipino and Jamaican heritage have influenced your food as a, as a chef. So can you tell us a bit about that? You know, for me, it's helped me identify a lot more flavors, um, a lot more techniques. The great thing is I, I didn't grow with just one style of cooking. I, I grew up with so many diverse um, styles that really affected just my philosophy on how I approach food. Um, something as simple as like seeing like Aki and jackfruit, normal people wouldn't know what the heck it is. But also with me going to school, me working at other places, I could, I could take those types of dishes and fuse them with these new world techniques at the same time or utilize them in different applications. But also kind of understand that how things kind of coexist throughout just different types of heritages and different types of cultures also. It was like, you know, for this trip, you know, 
um, we needed sunchokes for a dish. So they were asking around trying to find sunchokes for me. And they're like, yeah, we don't have them here. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Ask and see if you get Jerusalem artichokes. And then it was right there. So why are you in the UK and what are you doing? I don't even know why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> no, talk to I, us. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to, um, to showcase American food, talk about American traditions during the holiday season, and also talk about my personal heritage and, and how I've grown up. Um, you know, a lot of folks outside of the U.S. kind of see American food as, you know, burgers and pizzas and, and, and things of convenience, where essentially, you know, it's, it's food that actually helped nourish a lot of folks, uh, helped nourish a lot of civilizations. And at the same time, some of our traditions were also taken to other countries to, to help them out and showcase them. When you were a kid, what were you learning to cook with your mom? Um, just the basic things like, you know, I, I remember learning how to shave coconut at a very, very early age of like three years old. And essentially, like if you see old Asian coconut graters, this is this little box that you sit on and it has these very sharp points at the front of it. And I'm three years old with a coconut just shaving away, you know, fast forward to... Workplace health and safety. Yeah, I mean, no, serious. Like, you know, fast forward, like everybody's like, oh, well, you've been cooking for a while. What was the first, uh, first like cooking instrument you ever learned how to use? Mine was a mandolin wow. at such a young age, you know? Brave. And knock on wood, I haven't cut myself since then. You know, just learning how to utilize the basic tools, but learning how to cook things like chicken adobo, rice, synagogue, um, a lot of just the basic comfort dishes that my mother would always cook for me. And then the same thing with my grandmother. Um, you know, she taught me how to stew oxtails at a, at a young age. Um, at the same time, she also taught me how to how to grow vegetables because we had a vegetable in her in, in the backyard. So food was very a big part of um, who we were as a family. You know, we always spoke about um, our personal traditions and also just how far that we've come. Just you know, being immigrants and coming to the states. When you decided I'm going to be a chef, you wanted to go into specifically go into patisserie or being a pastry chef. How do you guys know all these things? Google. Jeez. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting because your dad actually said no. Yes. Yeah, you're so actually going to go off and study something that's a lot broader. It's going to cover off on a lot more. Yeah. And then you actually said that it was the best thing. That it was It was one of the best decisions ever. Like, you know, my mother helped give me a career. You know, she told me that if you wanted to cook, let's do it. You know, yada, yada, yada. My father was the one that told me that, you know, the best thing for you for this business is to learn all aspects of it. You know, learn the management side, learn the hotel restaurant side, like know all these things. Don't limit yourself just to going in there and making pastries. Granted, I want to make pastries. I think they're cool and, you know, and delicious. Yeah, and super delicious. And who doesn't enjoy a nice cake? Right. But there was so much more to it that I enjoyed um, and at the same time, you know, I, I knew that would broaden my horizon in the future. Was there a little bit of animosity there? Because you would have been, you know, this young, bolshy man and you would have been like, no, dad, I know what I'm talking about. I know what I want. You can't tell me what to no, do. I, I think my dad knew that I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. Right. Uh, pick, you up, know. pick up chicks. Yeah, pick up chicks. And, you know, <laughs> it was a great conversation piece at the table. No, he was just like, you know, he, 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 he knew that at that time, I wasn't as serious as, as I thought I would be. Um, so he was like, you know, if you're really going to do it, you might as well do it. And he helped kind of give me that backbone to it. You just mentioned then that you perhaps weren't taking it as seriously as you, as perhaps your dad wanted to, right. wanted you to. I think now you very much do take your food seriously. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you were particularly passionate about food history and heritage as you are now, before you took on your first role at the Mitsutan Cafe um, and then obviously moved on to Sweet Home. 
No, I wasn't. I, I think before I got into the museum dining, I was just more fascinated on having this super cool high-end restaurant, you know, 80 seats, kind of just putting these loud, crazy dishes on the menu that, that would just stir up some kind of, you know, talk. Whereas I moved into working for the Smithsonian, I started to understand there was a lot more to food. You know, it was about understanding the people behind it, understanding the cultures and the stories, and also understanding how we all kind of meet in the middle as people, you know, as, as far as, you know, different cultures and stuff like that. Like, there's always, like, some kind of stewed chicken dish. There's always some kind of rice dish. So mm. it shows you that we all have that kind of connection, and food does that for us. Do you think that you would have realized that connection and the fact that you enjoy it so much if you hadn't have gone into museum dining? I don't think so. It was the environment around you that suddenly yeah. thought, yeah. It I was definitely the environment stories. behind, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, it was the environment around me that really opened up my eyes to it. Um, it, it, it made me want to understand that how this seed grew this plant and how that plant affected all the other plants. It was, you know, why cows graze on this side of the mountain to produce this type of milk to make this kind of cheese during this type of year. So that really helped grow my understanding of not just what I could do with food, but where food comes from. In the UK, I've noticed that when we talk about museum dining, basically you go to any of our big institution museums in London it's a cafe and you get scones with jam and cream, you get some cakes, there might be soft drink and tea and coffee. That That is museum dining. And I think there are a couple of examples where, you know, they have a specific restaurant, but I don't know that there's much in it around focusing on what the museum focuses on. Right. Is that a common thing in the States or is it just those particular museums that look at that? Well, actually it kind of started off with the Midstown Cafe. Um, for us, we knew that we needed to stand aside all the other um, museum eateries, but also we needed to do what was right by the museum, and that was showcasing that, you know, we're an exhibition alongside it. You know, we mm -hmm. want you to be able to get the full effect of immersing yourself with this culture, seeing their food ways through their lenses, seeing some of the things that they grew up with and some of their traditions. And again, I keep on going back to it, but you see all that through food. So why wouldn't a cafe be an edible exhibit? so to speak. Can you tell us a little bit about the type of food that you served at Mitzitan? Because actually none of us, you know, Karis is Australian, I'm English. We don't know a lot about indigenous American food. So essentially, you know, we had uh, five different regions that, that represented the Western Hemisphere of the uh, United States of America. So what we've done is we've been able to take everything by region, look at the tribes that were in those regions, look at the products that were available at those times, as well as a lot of their cooking techniques and kind of coincide that throughout the season. So going into, you know, fall or winter, you knew up north that they did a lot more preservation in the summertime. So you see a lot more dried items on the menu in your fall and wintertime, like your dried beans, your pemmican, which was kind of like beef, like beef or buffalo jerky. So we utilized that a lot more into the cooking as well as the ingredients that were around at that time. So, you know, a certain type of trout only around, ran during this type of year, as well as, you know, Lobsters would be lush during this type of year, so we utilize them only, you know, during this time. So essentially it was making five different menus to represent five different regional styles of, of Native Americans. That does not sound like a simple task. Well, it, it's not that it's a simple task, it's a fun task because there's so many resources throughout those regions. So, you know, if we were talking about, you know, the Northwest Coast, well, there were a lot more salmon dishes because they always ran all, all types of year as well as, you know, they utilize a lot more boil-in-the-pot type of dishes. So you'd see things like your steamed fish, your steamed cockles, or, you know, a lot of cooking with seaweed to flavor mm. the water. But if you went to the Midwest, it was just like buffalo, 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 mm. venison, you know, 
wood fires, things like that. That's what made it fun because at any time of year, you had different options. You had different things that were available. You had different methods of cooking that, that actually coincided with that season. You know, your one pot dishes that were stewed forever and mm-hmm. utilizing those cuts of meat that, that weren't so ideal. So I have the same question for your current position, but basically when you're putting these menus together, are you working alongside people at the museum to get these resources? And are are you actually traveling to these places and talking to the people who are doing the cooking and saying, show me what you got? I mean, prior to, we did a lot of traveling as well as we did a lot of uh, work with with the tribes. Um, For us right now, um, we're such a busy place that there's not too much traveling that goes on, but we have the... The, the ability to have this dialogue with our food waste curators. But at the same time, because of where we're at, we have unlimited resources where it could just, I could pick up a phone and talk to, you know, Joe Randall and have a conversation about Southern food. And he's like the godfather of Southern food, especially in African-American cookery. You know, I've had the chance to have phone conversations with Leah Chase before she passed away and kind of understand where her food has transcended in these past couple of years and why she cooks a certain way. You know, the great thing about that is, you know, being in these facilities, we're able to get the additional uh, help as well as hear these additional stories that you wouldn't find just via internet. I can just imagine that pulling together menus is just, as some of those kind of things that you've just explained, it's just totally different to how you would sit down in a regular restaurant and write your, your oh, menu. Yeah. Because it's not only you're still trying to be seasonal, but it's all that historical stuff. You're still trying to tell stories. Yeah. And that, that's the most important part behind what we do in the museums. What's the most challenging thing? The most challenging thing is um, making sure we stay as authentic as possible to the amount of people that we serve. Um, You know, I don't run a 30-seat restaurant that serves 100 people a day. I run a 420-seat cafe that does upwards between 1,500 to 2,500 people a day. Wow. So how can we make sure that we don't lose these batch cooking ideas and not overly go, you know, with processed foods or things like that? How can we still do everything in-house and get it out to the guests? Um, as authentic as possible and make sure they're able to resonate with what they see and what they smell and what they taste. And how big is your kitchen team for that? Our staff's about 80 to 95. That's both front and back of the house. Um, I have anywhere between 15 to 20 cooks running around at one time. So it's fun. Now, when you were doing, so let's talk about Sweet Home Cafe now because we talked about Mitzvah a little bit, um, but where you currently are is Sweet Home Cafe. How you got the role was interesting as well. Somebody sort of came to you and said, I want you. Is that how it worked? It was a little bit of both. When I was offered the job at the Indian Museum, I didn't want it because I knew that they were building the African American Museum. Um, my boss at the time was like, well, we need you to go over there. But if you go over there and you do extremely well, we'll make sure that you're the guy that's over there. So I went back to that, to the, to the Indian Museum with a different attitude where we were really just focused on the team and focused on telling stories, but modernizing it in a sense so we don't lose our guests. And honestly, it worked out very well for us. Back up to the conversation I had, that gave me a lot more leverage to be where I wanted to be. And um, from there, um, I, I think I made a pretty good name for myself. At the time, Molly Bunch wanted me there, and it just all just worked out well. Do you feel it was a little bit overwhelming in some ways? Because you're like, this is a massive, it's not like you're walking into something that's, it's already started, you might yeah. have to change a few things, but actually you're going in there and you are driving it. For me, it was a little bit easier because it was something that I really wanted. Um, at the same time, we had a great team that opened that place up. So we had all the support that was needed. Um, we've been working on this plan for many years prior to. For me, it was just, you know, switching addresses and, and just seeing a, a different set of faces. You said that in an interview, again, that Sweet Home Cafe was like coming home. 
Uh, yeah, for me, it was. Um, you know, growing up in the D.C. area, uh, when I started working at restaurants, there wasn't like really great restaurants. You know, we had Michelle mm-hmm. Rashad, who had Citronelle. And then um, at the time, Jose Andreas was really coming into the city and opened up Haleo as well as Austin Grill. And this is like 98, 99, 2000. In order for me to find success, I thought I'd have to leave because there wasn't, it was nothing cutting edge about what was going on in D.C. We had franchise steakhouses everywhere. Um, so then I moved away for a couple of years, came back home and um, started opening up hotels with Kempton Hotels and just realized that there was a new breath of fresh air that was being breathed into the, to the city as far as food. Done different various uh, types of food, everything from, you know, French and Italian fusion places, Indian French places within the city and never really got to cook some of the food that I grew up with. So for me, going to the African-American Museum was just me coming home and telling my story of, you know, the kid that grew up 15 minutes down the street. You know, so it meant a lot to me. It means a lot to me. So I want to talk, and this stems from, you know, busting some myths, but we were talking earlier today about how there is a really different perception of what, I think there's a misconception about what American food is, that it's, as you said before, it's deep fried, it's uh, burgers, it's mac and cheese, it's all that sort of stuff. But what you're showing and what you're not just talking about, you're actually showing it on the plate, is that that's not what American food is and that's not what African-American food is because we have this idea that, you know, fried chicken and uh, collard greens and, that you know, that's kind of where we're going with it. But that's not true because... Like with the American Indian Museum, there's so many right. aspects to it. So can you talk us talk to us a little bit about how you're busting myths about that and actually showing people, and I imagine you're probably educating people who do come from a certain region oh, and yeah. cook a certain thing and going, well, actually, over here, this is what we're cooking, and that's our culture. You know, for us, I wouldn't say it's like necessarily myth-busting or anything like that. Of course, there's any there's stereotypes associated with different cultures. Um, what we've done is we've taken those stereotypes, we embrace them, but we also showcase, you know, the other side of the culture, the the other subcultures that make African-American culture. You know, we have a very West, very heavy uh, Caribbean, West Indian influence, as well as, you know, in different parts of Africa, you see those Mediterranean influence. So this is all brought into the foods that, you know, that we brought over, you know, coming, coming over to the States. But at the same time, you know, we dub it what American food is because I feel that American foods, well, I personally feel American food has just been pretty much based on just immigrants, like folks. So it's just been this big melting pot of just great, delicious stuff. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, the more popular things are what people highlight. Um, so for us, it was just about just continue to tell a story, but tell it in a way where it was easy for people to follow. And again, that's keeping it regional, but just looking at the migration of African-Americans via entry, the entry point. You know, if you looked at like a Creole coast was a lot of West Africans that came over, they were fishermen by trade. So that's why you see a lot more like uh, your, your, your gumbos, your cre- mm-hmm. your, uh, your shrimp and grits and things like that down there. But then if you look at... Um, the migration via Underground Railroad going up to uh, the northern states like New York City and stuff like that, you see a lot of Caribbean influence. Mm. So we have those Caribbean dishes in there. And then you look at um, the westward expansion going to the Western Range after slavery was abolished. Now that's where it you know, gets a lot more fun because you had African-Americans that were cooking on the chuck wagons, you know, uh, cooking food for folks that were working on the railroad. And there were Latinos, there were Asians, there was you know, there was a mixture of people just trying to build that thing. What had happened, what, well, what happens is, you know, throughout the migration, you do have like, you know, your basic recipes and things like that. But also you have to adapt your recipes based on what's available to you. You know, so that's where, you know, a lot of people will see certain things. You know, it's like the, the great iced tea debacle. 
Oh. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. I am not familiar. No. So it's, you know, is it southern? So is it southern tea or is it sweet tea, right? So down south, you know, there's a super sweet tea, but it's like all sugar. But if you go up north, because of the things that are readily more available, you'll see sweet tea made with things like maple syrup or honey. Which is so. This is kind of over here. We've got the uh, with scones. You've got well, you've got scones or scones for a starting point. Sorry, Karis, you are about to <clears throat> unleash the beast. No, I just need to give him an example. I'm not going to debate it with you now. <laughs> but basically, is it jam then cream on the scone, or is it cream then jam on the scone? I mean, it's going to make no difference with the way right. it tastes. Oh, but there is one, oh. one. There is one right way. Anyway, There's we're not going to debate this. Right we'll way. talk about this later. Oh, we'll Listeners, do not at us. <laughs> <laughs> this is a huge issue in the UK. It's between Cornwall and Devon, and you guys are going to Plymouth on your trip. Devon, do it one way, and Cornwall do it another, and they are rivals. Right. Wow. One is jam on top. One is cream on top. Back to the tea. Yep. Sweet the tea debacle. Yeah, what, so, what's so, the right one? There is no right way. I mean, it, it, it's, it's it's like, you know, heritagely, and, and, and I think, you know, what leaks to your family or, or what links to what you grew up with. How do you have yours? How do I have mine? I like uh, honey in my tea. And how are you making it? Like hot water, tea, honey, let it cool down, pour it over ice, a little lemon. I'm not to put it outside in the jar and stuff <laughs> like that. No, I'm very just like simple and neat and call it a day. What is comfort food to you? Uh, comfort food to me is just the things that I grew up with, things that resonate with me, things that take me to a time and a place. You know, something as simple as like my my mother's chicken adobo, which is like the soy sauce braised chicken. It's comfort food to me, but it might be a nice fancy meal to somebody else. But mm. that's something that I grew up with. Like I identify with those flavors, those smells. Um, you know, it always takes me to that to that place of being the little boy sitting at the dining room table waiting for my mother to feed me. So that's how I kind of view like what comfort food is. Like it has that that, that point in time that it resonates with you it makes you feel comforting it, it takes you back you said in an interview that for your last night on earth you'd eat in tokyo yes why tokyo and what would that meal look like that meal would probably be the it's like would it be the best bowl of ramen that i could find in tokyo oh yes or would it be like that corner machine where i have exactly a dollar fifty to put into it to get that nice cheap bowl of ramen but it's going to be a bowl of ramen. Okay. It just depends on where and how I'm feeling, like, you Your know. circumstances. Yeah. Hopefully you get the really good ramen and not the... No, see, that, that's the whole thing, <laughs> the I'm telling you. vending machine ramen. Like, I'd, I'd probably enjoy eating a, vending, a, a bowl of vending machine ramen on the corner of some fast street just watching people. You know? So it's not so much about... It's about the whole experience that ties into it. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Jerome. Awesome. thank it's you. brilliant talking to you. That's all we have time for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Jerome. It's been amazing to hear about everything you're doing at Sweet Home Cafe and your love of food and history is palpable. You're welcome back to talk to us anytime. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.